Hear now the pure word of God. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this portion of your holy word. We thank you for sending the Spirit, who not only guided Paul to write these things, but who is here with us today, even now. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us that we would be disciples, we would be students in the school of Christ. Enable us, O Lord, to hear and receive and trust and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you a follower of Jesus? How do you follow someone who's moving? You follow by moving, by walking. Our Lord Jesus gathered around him various disciples in his earthly ministry. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57, we read the following. So if, you have, if you'll turn with me to that, the end of chapter 9. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid farewell to those uh, who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Notice these different calls to follow Jesus, and notice the different answers. What does it mean in verse 62 that look back when Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God? Well, the idea is, is as you're plowing, right? And what happens when you're plowing with an oxen and, and a plow, and you start looking around, sort of looking head up, straight on, what's going to happen to the furrow? It's going to go like this. Many years ago, I was 
in uh, Linden, Washington, and I, I was considering a call to a church there, and the elder that I was staying with, uh, he had to plow 10 acres of his land, and he let me drive. At that time, it was an $80,000 tractor. That was back in 1997. That same tractor probably would be a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, it had everything available. And um, as we were plowing, he said, one of the things that you have to be careful, he had to get out of the tractor and, and had me continue driving it. And he said, whatever you do, make sure you keep the furrow straight. Because all the other farmers in the neighborhood are all going to drive by and they look and make sure that everybody's furrows are straight and they mock anybody whose furrow is like this. Okay. And so I don't want to have to deal with that. So make sure you run the plow straight. While I'm running, I hit a rock and broke the plow, but oh well. Is that what Jesus is saying here? No man putting his, his, oh, his what is it the right word? His hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does God call us to do? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Fix your eyes on, on Jesus, the author. What does an author do? Author writes. The author and perfecter of your faith. He's the author of your faith. He's the one who will complete it. Hmm. Did we just talk about that? No, we didn't. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that which you began to do, do it with all that is within you. Ultimately, God is the one who gives you the ability. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I'm called to do, what am I called to do? Glorify God. Not myself, but God. God's grace. I am called to be a reflector of God. And we've used that illustration. How do you glorify God? Remember the mirror in your bathroom? You walk into the bathroom and you see the mirror because it's foggy. But if it's clean, you don't see the mirror, you see yourself. Right? We're called to be a mirror that's not foggy. So that when others see us, they don't see us, they see Jesus. That's what it means to glorify God. As, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's our calling, that God would be glorified. Now in the bulletin, I mentioned the Lord's Supper. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper next week. Uh, so there's an error that just skipped that error. God reminds us in the Lord's Supper why Christ suffered and died. But also, he calls us to respond to Christ's completed work. And so, what we find here today in our text is a response to the grace of God. What has Paul been doing throughout this letter? Has he been talking about the grace of God? Is that not what I said this letter, you could summarize the letter as a letter of grace? In chapter 1, it focuses on the triune God. 
God the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he goes on to describe what he's talking about. And then he prays, and then he comes back in chapter 2. Well, let's make sure you clearly understand grace. Well, how bad were you in Adam? You're dead in trespasses and sins. But God, verse 4, the grace of God. But God, who is rich in mercy with his great love, with which he loved us while we were yet dead, what happened? While we were yet dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Remember the first verb for the first three chapters of Ephesians. If you want to summarize the first few chapters in one word, it is what you're doing right now. And that is sit, seated in Christ in heavenly places there in verse 5 and 6. Then he went on again to say, okay, let's make sure we really get this down. Who were you in Adam? You're aliens. You're strangers. You're separated from God. You're separated from the people of God. But now, again, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation. You have been reconciled to God. And you have been reconciled to the people of God. You are his beloved bride, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church. And then, guess what? We come to our text, and again, he wants to make sure that we want to understand the grace of God, so what does he do? He says, now, this is the way you used to walk. Here's how you conducted your life. Don't do it. Why? That's not who you are. You're in Christ. You're a saint. You're holy in the sight of God. And so he begins chapter 4 with first how we are to conduct our life and then our text here, how we are not to conduct our life. So notice in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. So he begins the second major verb that is in chapters 4, 5, and into 6, and that is walk, 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 walk. He says it over and over again. And here in our text is where he says, and don't walk. Walk this way, but don't walk this way. Okay? So walk worthy of your calling, verse 17. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Walk in love, verse, uh, chapter 5, 5. Walk as children of light, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 15. Walk accurately with care. So that is Paul's message in the second half of the book. Conduct your life following Jesus walking. And so what he does, as you see in the first point in the outline, remember from where you came, verses 17 through 19. Notice what Paul starts off by saying, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, 
in the futility, futility of their mind. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I'm in a court. I am testifying in the Lord. I charge you. I exhort you with all seriousness. I stand before the judge and jury. That's what he's saying. This is what you should not do. Now, why would he say that? Because we are tempted to do so. We're at war with the flesh. Which one of these three enemies is the most dangerous? The world, the flesh, or the devil? The flesh. The devil comes and goes. The world's out there. It's the flesh that is the greatest battle that we have. In, uh, in this body of death, Paul describes it. The old man, he says it here. We war against the flesh. He says, walk not as the Gentiles walk. Something that is possible? Yes. This is a warning. Take heed, lest you fall. And then he provides God's mirror in verses 17 through 19. Our natural state in Adam. Again, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles. Well, what are the Gentiles like? What is the temptation? And it goes through a series. Notice that series there in verse seven, beginning in verse 17. He says, who's having their understanding darkened. They're guided by the desires of the flesh and of the mind, he said earlier in chapter 2, verse 3. So this is focusing on intellectual and moral darkness. In Adam, we were all darkness. We were in the kingdom of darkness. The devil is the ruler of that kingdom. He says, do not walk in the emptiness, the vanity of their mind. Secondly, he says what? They are alienated. Here he goes back to chapter 2. They were alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? To be separated from the life of God means you're what? If you're separated from life, you are? Come on. Dead. Thank you. Right? Did Paul say that? That we were dead in trespasses and sins? He's already said that in chapter 2 in a couple of places. So number one, under, their understanding is darkness. They're alienated from God and from life through ignorance and blindness of heart. What do they need? What does someone in Adam need if their heart is dark and blind, do you need heart surgery? Do you need a heart transplant? Can you do it? Is there anybody today can do a heart transplant on themselves physically? No. It has to be God. Does God say that promise to give a new heart? Is that in the Bible? And the answer is yes. Ezekiel, of all places, right? Ezekiel 36. I'll put a new heart in now. I'll take the heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh. We need heart surgery.
Notice he goes on to say, without feeling. Their conscience is seared. The blindness of heart and without feeling, without moral sensitivity. Not no longer susceptible to pain. Many years ago when I was a kid, I was a little one, and my mom was ironing. And there was an iron there, and she had just finished ironing, and she said to me, don't touch the iron. So what did I, an obedient little boy, decide to do? When you tell someone not to do something, what is it that they want to do? Exactly what you told them not to do. Guess what I did? I touched it. I seared my finger. For a while there, after the blisters and all, could I feel? Could I feel with that seared finger? The answer is no. Here Paul says that in Adam, our morality is seared. There's not a sensitivity We're not susceptible to pain. Is that a dangerous place to be? If you don't feel pain, what's going to happen to you? That's what leprosy does. It takes away the ability to feel pain. What happens when you can't feel pain? And you you burn your finger, you cut yourself or whatever, and you don't feel pain. You don't react. And what happens? You start losing your fingers and toes. That's what happens to lepers. They start because they don't feel pain. They injure themselves and they don't know it. And they continue to go as if they didn't. And slowly but surely, they disintegrate. Is that a good way to describe our culture today? Is there a searing of the conscience in our culture today? I don't care. I, I was listening to the uh, um, or reading a, uh, an account of a Muslim born in Gaza, you may have read this one, as a kid, he was taught in first grade, kill Jews. Did anybody read that? And then he went to work in Israel and ultimately converted to to Judaism. But he's talking about the, the celebration of killing Jews. Not, I don't know if you've been hearing some of those reports that Conscience is seared with a hot iron. No sensitivity. We are appalled by what happened in October 7th, right? 1,400 people, innocent, most of them, right? No sensitivity. From the river to the sea. These are aspects of inanim. Understanding darkened, alienated from the life of God, strangers to the life of God, blindness of heart, practical proof without feeling, without moral sensitivity. Debauchery, lasciviousness, excess, unlawful indulgence of lust. Boy, does that sound like our society today, is it not? Calvin said it this way. Let us note that until God has visited us and has come near to us and subdued us to himself, we shall always remain ignorant and blind wretches. There will be nothing but vanity in our understanding. In our hearts there will be nothing but pride and presumption. 
Our desires will be so excessive that they will amount to insolence against God, and we shall fight against his justice and against all right. That's how he summarized what Paul was saying. Paul is saying what to us? Don't conduct your life this way. Don't walk this way. This is what you were. This is not who you are. I'm in Christ. My identity is in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, questions 3 through 11, are designed to do just that. Show us our need of a Savior. Do you need a Savior? Do you need Jesus? Right? You're dead without him. Is it healthy to know you got a problem? It's important to know you got a problem in order to deal with the problem. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. Paul does this again. Here's what you were. Don't go there. You're a new creature in Christ. But he goes on. Remember what he's what you've been taught, verse 20. And 21. But but on the contrary, he does it again. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Isn't that great statement? Jesus is the truth. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's only the truth. Okay? And notice, he says, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you've been taught by him, that's not who you are. You're in Christ. He's the master. He's the Lord. Not, uh, But not... You have learned Christ. You are not ignorant. You are a disciple, a learner, a student, one taught. Different ways to say the same thing. One who has received instruction. Christ is the truth, and you've been taught the truth. That's not who you are. Stop living that way. That's what he's saying. Don't walk that way. He gives this forceful contrast. Why? Because we need to hear it again, I guess, right? Sometimes maybe we stop and we say, well, pastor, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Well, Paul seems to think it's important to say it again, say it again, say it again. Why? Are we at war? Do we fall back? Are we tempted? And the answer is yes. This is not who you are in Christ. You need to be taught. You need to be instructed. We are students in the school of Christ. Or not. Right? Either you're in Christ or you're outside. Okay. Notice he says, if so, you have, been, have heard and you have been taught. Calvin says, see to it that you do not make an empty profession lest you should be convicted of falsehood before God and his angels, and that the name of Jesus Christ, which ought to be holy to you, be not taken in vain. We just confessed the uh, Nicene Creed. Did you take that in vain? Or were you serious? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? You made a profession of faith. The truth is in Jesus. And so that's why in the Heidelberg Catechism, the largest section from, from uh, question number 12 through question number 85, 
What is it designed to do? Teach us about Jesus and what Jesus has done. Uses the Apostles' Creed. Focuses on the sacraments, pointing to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The good news. But, as he says here, but you have not so learned Christ. Are you followers of Jesus Christ? Are you desirous? Again, one of the most important, uh, one of the important things is, do you have a teachable spirit? That's what Calvin said was the change in his life, is that God gave him a teachable spirit. Before that, he was an arrogant, prideful person that knew it all, and he was brilliant. And then God humbled him. Do you have that teachable spirit? Lord Jesus, I want to know what you have to say. I want to learn from you. I want to know my Savior and how I am redeemed from all my sin and misery. Finally, third point. You're hanging in there? You guys are doing good? Everybody hanging in? Okay, we're working toward the end. Verses 22 through 24. We're going to get into more on this next week. Uh, that you put off concerning the former conduct, which he just described. The old man, which grows corrupt according to the Cephalus, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man. Okay. So what is he talking about? Thank you. Right? What's the third part of the catechism? How I be thankful to God for such redemption. And what does he say to do? Put off the old man. Okay, that's what I was. It's not my identity anymore. My identity is not my sin. Contrary to those who say I can be a homosexual Christian. No. You're either Christian or you're homosexual. You're not a homosexual Christian. Your identity is not your sin. Your identity is either in Christ or in Adam. You've got, we've got that before. We've said this before. Is it important? You're either in Christ or you're not. I do not identify myself with my sin. Do you? My sins are forgiven me. That's not who I am. I am righteous in Christ before God and in the air of eternal life. Wonderful statement. Where's that? Our response to Christ and his completed work of the cross is thankfulness. Thus, the third part of the catechism is thankfulness. Questions 86, 87, and so on. In those questions, the first thing they address is what Paul is saying here. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. But notice there's a center part. Put off the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is who I am in Christ. Now put on the new man, who I am in Christ. I'm not my sin. I no longer have a sin nature. I have a new nature in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. Now I'm called to live out what God is working in me, what God has done. Put off the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man. Again, We'll go into more detail. Actually, Paul does in the rest of the, chap of the chapter. He starts saying, well, let's get practical here. Okay, for you who are liars, or those you who have a tendency to lie to get out of trouble. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in trouble? And, the only, and oh, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie to get out of trouble. Right? You've never done that. You have? Okay. 
He said, put away lying, put off the lying, and speak the truth. Whatever the consequence. And he'll go on to describe various temptations that we face. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that next week, verses 25 through 32. But again, God is calling us, and, and the song was, O man of God, we could say, O woman of God, O child of God, rise up, O man of God. Notice that statement. What did we just sing? Rise up, O man of God, O woman of God, O child of God, rise up, have done with lesser things. Is that all of those things that Paul just described? Are they lesser? Alienated from the life of God, and so on. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Is that loving God? with all our heart, mind, soul. Is that where he's coming from? Rise up, O man of God. The kingdom tarries long. Bring in the day of brotherhood and then the night of wrong. Rise up, O man of God. The church for you does wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of God, rise up, O man of God. That's Paul's call. That's the Lord's call for us. Right? Because of grace. Again, because of grace. How can I say thank you to God? And that, and his answer is, follow me. Do what I say and do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the Apostle Paul as we think about his life before Christ in Adam how he persecuted and killed Christians, tried to destroy the church and wipe it off the face of the earth. And yet, in your great mercy and great love, you confronted him on that road to Damascus. You changed his heart. You granted him repentance. And you caused him to follow you. And now we are following, following in his footsteps as he follows you. And we hear what you have taught him and through him. And we pray that you would enable us to identify with Christ more and more, to turn away from the old man, to put it to death, to put on the new man, which is created in you in righteousness and true holiness. We pray that you would enable us to hate our sin and turn from it always more and more, and to rejoice in you through Christ, causing us to take delight in living according to your will in all good works. We, don't, we know that our, our salvation is based on the work of Christ, not our good works, but yet we desire that the fruit of the Spirit would be seen in us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.